Hello, welcome to the next episode, probably the sixth episode, I think, of Taking the Universe Around the World. I am currently recording this in a hotel room in Edmonton. There's a, a fridge that I can't turn off because the plug is too far behind, an enormous piece of furniture, and if the wardrobe looms like a beast of prey, I will be there by your side, uh, in the words of uh, Morrissey in The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, which for some reason I remember reading about... Uh, it must have been in Mosopedia, uh, Simon Goddard's book, which uh, suggests that it was uh, inspired by the Victorian TV detective show Crib. You don't need to know any of these things. The reason that I'm particularly rambly with this one is, unfortunately, um, just started the, the second leg of the tour, and um, it appears that I've picked up some kind of chest infection. And uh, don't worry, it's not that one, but it's um, it's enough of one that means that I'm not allowed to travel uh, for the time being and we decided that it was risky for me to be on stage uh, and at the gigs because we don't want to give anyone else the chest infection that I've got in case it affects the tours that of course have already been affected a great deal in the last year. So I am now, everyone else has gone off to Calgary um, today and um, I am now alone in the hotel room um, until my infection has past which is really disappointing um i'll probably this will be on another podcast because i've been writing about this anyway but that to travel this far to travel eight thousand kilometers and then not be able to travel the last four kilometers to the theater to do a show is uh yeah just the 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 size of disappointment and also just because i then feel tremendously lazy and i feel like it's an alibi an excuse and it doesn't matter that i've been told to do this whatever anyway that's not where i was a few weeks ago uh in fact where i was was i was uh, on stage with uh, nick cave and warren ellis and i was playing bass it was a small gig but it went well uh after the gig nick went off with someone to discuss grief and uh i told warren how happy the dirty three made me when i watched them live <laughs> said something negative about Connor Oberst who followed them once at the uh, End of the Road Festival and uh, I have to admit I was very disappointed Connor Oberst who I'd, I'd, I'd really enjoyed his work and he brought a very negative atmosphere with him to the stage um, but I decided to stay positive. This by the way was of course all within uh, a dream um, I've, had, I've had a few Nick Cave dreams recently, you can find out more about my, my, my the celebrity lineup in my dreams has been getting better and 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 better and better, including a rather bizarre one with uh, with Iron Maiden. Uh, anyway, I think I presume this dream in particular came from the fact that as I was not able to see the Nick Cave exhibition in Montreal because it was closed the day we were there, my mind created an instant where Nick Cave was involved anyway. And uh, and I did. I woke up slightly disappointed that I was neither uh, friends with Warren Ellis, uh, nor indeed could I play the bass guitar. Um, and then I went to Indianapolis. It's a flat journey to Indianapolis, and I was disappointed. There's surprisingly few billboards 
of note. There, w- there was one that advised me that Jesus was the answer at the same time as informing me that Scott door services are for all your door needs. Um, so the, 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 the very door that you can allow um, Jesus to come through should you wish uh, or whether it was in fact a, a billboard that only got halfway through a transition um, or whether it was actually that the door services are secretly the Jehovah's Witnesses and so they come round to fit a new door but of course once you've got the door off there's no way of stopping them um, eulogising about their own particular take on Christianity. Today I'm in a distracted mood flitting about from half-thought to half-thought in one of those kind of vaguely hypnagogic manners. There's a conversation about the belly-button-altering nature of pregnancy and how you can end up with one that looks like a cat's bottom. That's going on just across from me. And then I scroll through Twitter as we pass another barn. There's a tweet from Natasha Devon. Anyone else find their body lets them know before their brain when they're struggling psychologically? Yes, I think very often. I find it remarkable that I've spent so much of my life believing I was anxious because my body felt weird or spasmodic or I suddenly needed to go to the toilet or something else with potential for public shame when actually this was and still is primarily how my anxiety makes its presence known. Does the body rule the mind or the mind rule the body? Like space-time, the separation seems ultimately impossible. But then, a billboard that announces warmth and delight. It is the glow candle outlet. It promises that it does much more than just glow candles, including gnomes. Eventually, we approach the outlet, and I am impressed by the size of the big candle that declares the existence of the shop and it's probably the nearest I'll get on this trip to seeing The Giant Pineapple. I don't know if you know the book, by the way. It's a wonderful book called Roadside Attractions, and it covers all of those different things that have been created, like Fridge Henge. I think there is a refrigerator henge somewhere around, uh, uh, amongst other things, where somewhere in the middle of nowhere needs to lure you to their diner. So they create something that's just big. We don't have long in Indianapolis, and I have one key destination the Vonnegut Library and Museum. I turn the corner onto Indiana Avenue at a large jazz mural. As I will find out in the museum, jazz is important to Indianapolis. In fact, it annoys me that now, at the age that I've got to, 53, I still have problems with jazz. Not like I don't like jazz, but that I really want to like jazz. And I see people that are into jazz, and I, and I listen to bits of jazz, and I'm kind of fascinated by jazz, but somehow I don't have the jazz mind. Maybe it'll happen in my 60s. The museum is currently working on the funding for a documentary on Wes Montgomery, which is going to be released in 2023, the centenary of his birth. Montgomery was a pioneering jazz guitarist who would pluck the strings with the side of his thumb. This year, 2022, is the centenary of Kurt Vonnegut, so we'll probably do a documentary about him quite soon on Cosmic Shambles. I meet Brittany, 
She's the vice president of the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library, and she kindly takes me on the tour of Vonnegut typewriters and band books and the purple heart that he got for frostbite, which is something that Kurt Vonnegut was dismissive of. On one stairwell wall is a communally made quilt from the Indianapolis Modern Quilt Guild. Practising an art, no matter how well or badly, is a way to make your soul grow. It's wonderful. And I believe it's a true quote from Kurt Vonnegut. I think it is very much based in the reality of creativity, whether for an audience or for yourself. Vonnegut is always an inspiration, and so to be in this space, to be surrounded by him. But this is not just a, a museum and library in memory of Kurt Vonnegut. It's a place of inspiration and encouragement. I tell Brittany about Josie Long's UK charity, Arts Emergency, because that has similar aims. What the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library wants is to bring people in, attract them to the possibility of creating in this space, tell them that it is worth taking the words from their mind and placing them on a page. While wandering around, I also see a poster declaring, Beware of Artists. They mix with all classes of society and are therefore most dangerous. I presume this is ironic or from a manifesto, but it turns out this is a straight-down-the-line warning from Senator Joseph McCarthy. And it's a reminder that increasingly far-right hacks and politicians that we see swivelling the Overton window are no new demons. In fact, I watched a documentary with Ed Asner, the brilliant actor and activist Ed Asner, all about the McCarthy trials and witch hunt, and you kind of are reminded that it didn't take social media to lure out some of the most regressive voices. Those regressive voices have always found their plinths and their platforms. The museum also has bookshelves of banned books that include the works of Octavia Butler, Margaret Atwood and Lenny Bruce. On a wall nearby one of the shelves is Vonnegut's letter to the chairman of the Drake School Board who put him on the list of unsavoury books that would warp a child's mind. Again, like all those people who kind of talk against the woke, it seems that rather than warping minds, what so many of these works of sometimes activism, sometimes poetry and sometimes novels, what they're doing is not warping a mind but opening a mind. Anyway, what he wrote in the letter was, you should acknowledge that it was a rotten lesson you taught young people in a free society when you denounced and then burned books, books you hadn't even read. Now in the 21st century, the real book burning and destruction of rights comes from the right, whose handy propagandists and dull-minded cheerleaders distract with warnings of the woke, pretending that it's the left who are censorious. Now this is not to say that the left are entirely uncritical when Dave Chappelle does one of his transphobic specials or whatever it might be, but this idea that they are the ones who are going into Florida and actually being, that this is the real free speech issue, as, as various teachers said after the latest atrocity, shooting atrocity, and of course I won't even say which one it was because who knows, by the time you hear this there may well have been another one where they said that they're, they're not allowed to choose the books that a child reads, but they're being told that they should be allowed to be armed. It is a strange world to argue with, to try and work out if there is any reason underlying all of this. Don't warp minds, 
They don't. My anecdotal evidence is that Kurt Vonnegut, rather than warping minds, humanises minds, encourages empathy and, of course, kindness. Again, as does Octavia Butler, as does the work of Margaret Atwood, as does the work of Ursula K. Le Guin. But as we know, empathy and kindness are threats for those solely driven by power and money. Upstairs, I adored Ivan Mickelson's bronze statue of Vonnegut. He's emaciated, as he was when returning from the war, but on top of his emaciated frame is his middle-aged face, and he is perched on top of a pile of books. There is a display of women who shaped Kurt Vonnegut. His sister Alice, she died young, and Kurt and his wife brought up her children. He said, I didn't realise... She was who I wrote for until after she died. He would imagine her behind him as he wrote. The tables throughout the library and museum are decorated with cases of artistic censorship such as Piss Christ. The top floor is Slaughterhouse Five floor with memories of Vonnegut's war and other reactions to war, including the paintings of Augustus Shawcross, a veteran who's dealing with PTSD. And there's also the letter Vonnegut's father sent to him as he went to war. It was returned to sender, and his father gave it to him when Vonnegut returned from that war. Vonnegut decided that he would never open it. His son Mark inherited it, and he too has respectfully decided not to open it. Sadly, the Vonnegut Museum and Library shop is short of the t-shirt sizes that I need. They have small and extra extra large, and I am somewhere in between. Fortunately, their limited edition T-shirt that chronicles the whole of Vonnegut's career for Sports Illustrated, all the half day of it, did fit me. The reason it was a half day was he was sent out to report from a horse race. And his review of that horse race, and I think I could say it's a review rather than a report, was the horse jumped over the fucking fence. Afterwards, I walked down the canal. It's as picturesque as any promotional film aiming to convince you that this is where your family will grow and flourish. Couples hug on benches, toddlers greet strangers as they pass, swan pedalos patrol the canal while real Canadian geese guard their downy ducklings. There are gondolas too, which reminds me more of the Venetian Hotel in Las Vegas than Venice. I need a cereal bar, so I pop into the mall that smells sulfurous and has two children as different incarnations of Spider-Man wandering around. Looking at the confectionery, I'm always tempted by the Twinkies and the other chemically creamy sponges that remind me of the adverts in DC and Marvel when I was growing up. They preempt a world of Soylent Green, but a kind of tastier, sugary, more diabetic Soylent Green. As I leave them all, a smartish-looking woman leans into a trash can, and opens up a fast food carton. I was allowed to opt out of boxing training for this Vonnegut adventure, but I agreed to lift weights for 30 minutes with a view of a pool where people are inhaling chlorine while lying in toweling and doing nothing else. Tonight's theatre is beautiful, historical and undersold. It's the smallest audience of the tour, so the dressing room is full of our firing squad humour and reinvented jokes from Morecambe and Wise about Ernie's fan. There was nothing to fear, though. They're an engaged and friendly audience, and lots of people from the Vonnegut Museum and Library were there. I'm feeling very tired. But Brian has had 
one of his nap days, one mid-morning and one mid-afternoon. So he is a dynamo. In Indianapolis tonight, the audience's questions included, a few years ago, I heard something about black holes having hair. What the hell is that all about? There's an episode of Star Trek where they leave our galaxy and they have to cross a galactic barrier. Is there any real science that would back this concept? And, so at the singularity where time stops, is it chaos or nothing at all? My husband wants to know. We're straight onto the road to Chicago after Indianapolis. So, once there, I will read one of Harry Stephen Keeler's books. I used to read them live on stage in a game that I played with Alan Moore. Sadly, I do not have a copy of The Man with the Wooden Spectacles, which was one of our mutual favourites. After a week in Canada, and then some of the smaller US cities, the industrial soundtrack of Chicago comes as a surprise. But not for long. It's the sound of a city making sure it can breathe and is not cooked in its own bed. The emergency services have no peace, so neither do we. There's a relentless possibility of an Irwin Allen film springing up in every corner of the city throughout the night. What is Charlton Heston hanging from? For who will Gene Hackman sacrifice himself? Walking along the pavements, the tarmac throbs under you. We arrive at midnight. I sit up for a while and type, as well as contemplating the possibility of laundry. Unfortunately, the division between the clean and the used has now lost all definition in my suitcase and I must resort to my olfactory senses for judgment on some socks. We've got three days in Chicago and that gives us time to use the hotel's laundry service. It is a great luxury on tour to just not constantly be wringing out your socks in a sink as you rush out. Normally, I've eschewed the use of hotel laundry because I was brought up with parsimonious values. I cannot help but shirk at $4 to clean a pair of socks. But on this occasion, unlike the last tour, I decide that I'm not going to spend too much of my time with my hands in the sink. On this tour, I'm going to act like the liberal media elite. So I fill the laundry sack to bursting and I hold back the bottle of travel wash. The laundry bag is a little too small for all of my needs, so I decide that I will probably wash some of the T-shirts myself. I do this by standing in the shower with the T-shirt on, and then I just soak the T-shirt as if it was my own skin. It's a kind of wet T-shirt competition, but a very, very private affair. I take a double dose of melatonin and dream of eight hours sleep. Though I don't actually end up dreaming. There's no Nick Cave for me tonight. At 9am, I open my curtains and see myself reflected in the building opposite. There is much towering glass in America now, so each building seems to preen into another. Angle them right and you have an infinite regression for an architectural narcissus. Breakfast is spent watching charity workers failing to stop passers-by while we eat omelettes. Every day is exercise day now that Steph has arrived and Brian insists I must shrivel in the sunlight rather than seek shelter by the weights in the gym. The Factor 50 is pasted heavily on until I'm pale enough to be ready for a jogging bottom remake of Death in Venice, and we walk to the park by the pier. Today, this could be Miami. The lake is like a sea. 
Steph finds a concrete pit which she tells us will be suitable for our cardio workout. Small dogs watch us quizzically. We jump up and down, we squat and we press. Both Steph and Brian have watches that tell them far more than the time. They tell them their heart rate, where they've been, where they might be going and possibly erase any errant thoughts which are not brand friendly. They check their heart rates and see that they've reached the requisite BPM and I check my watch and see that it's nearly 1pm. When they first had their matching watches, breakfast would be spent charting their deepest sleep and their heart rate and checking they had not been surreptitiously dead at any point in the night. We reach the necessary energy expounding that makes Brian smile and then we go to seek a coffee. We're also allowed muffins. Brian explains black holes to me again and then we find the more comfortable area for me of discussing the brilliance of The Great Gatsby. I will relentlessly use this quote because unfortunately it never stops being relevant and I first really noticed it, not when I was reading The Great Gatsby, a novel that I love, but when I would see Howard Zinn, the the great anarchist historian, use it. Uh, Talking of Daisy and Tom, F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote, They were careless people. They smashed things and then retreated into their money. Remind you of any people in politics? The two cultures of our discussions of Gatsby and black holes lasts as long as Brian's caramel slice. And we get as far as Foyle's war via entropy and eventually arrive at the time I saw Sean Bean in Romeo and Juliet on a scooter. We are on the avenue that is no good for my consumerism. It's all fashion and sneakers. You can't find a barely bruised bookshop for miles around. To avoid being too lazy on the tour, I have a specific word count for the new book that I'm writing. It's strict, but it's a short word count. If there ever is a deadline, at the very least, it will be at least a year away, as the book I've just finished, Bibliomaniac, is due out this autumn. I open a map and search for the walking distance bookshops, and eventually choose Open Books. It's described as a non-profit store with a mission to encourage literacy. It sounds like my kind of place, and it's a part of Chicago I've not been to, so I can get lost on my way there. I walk along the river, building spotting, which is, more often than not, easier than bird watching or even train spotting. If you see a building, you don't then turn to a friend and go, oh, you've just missed it, it's just gone. I'm particularly taken by two apartment blocks that look like the sort of place that the sporting stars of Rollerball would have their swingers parties. I continue under the rusted yellow support structures of the train line. As carriages rattle over, there's a romanticism in recalling Hollywood's grittier 70s cop thrillers, occasionally broken by, yet again, the reality of homelessness. Open Books is, unfortunately, worth the trip on many counts. I've now gone beyond the book luggage limit, so each new purchase must also require a sacrifice. The last few hotels of this stretch will each have a third book in the bedside drawer behind their Gideon's Bible and their Mormon Bible. Today I must slide open the drawer and place George P. Pelicanos's Shame the Devil in. It's a revenge drama that I think will fit well with anyone who's just been reading the Old Testament. I wander around and read the handwritten book recommendations from the booksellers. I'm glad to see by Grand Central Station I sat down and wept in a central position. This is Zylon's recommendation. This slim but powerful novel may be quoted as the inspiration for some of Morris's lyrics, but don't hold that against it. Kelsey recommends Shirley Jackson. 
I'm obsessed. I think you might be too. Joey recommends The Man in the High Castle. I know you're not a sci-fi person, neither was I, but then I read The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch. Dot, dot, dot. I had my moment of 40 days in the wilderness condensed into 30 minutes because there was one irresistible book that I did manage to resist. It was Edith Bouvier Beale of Grey Gardens, A Life in Pictures. I love the documentary Grey Gardens. I've also seen the film adaptation of it with Drew Barrymore, and I've even seen the musical version of it that starred Sheila Hancock. I remember the first time I saw Grey Gardens, I was a teenager and it was just discovered by chance, late night on BBC Two. I'd not seen anything like it. It was one of those kind of rites of passage documentaries, a little bit like the first time that I saw the work of Frederick Wiseman on Channel 4. I managed to deny myself. Mind you, we are here for two more days, so I might come back. There's also an early hardback edition of James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time. That really must be mine, but even that, I managed to resist. I pick up a few oddities instead, a hardback of Valentine Dahl's Unsolved Mysteries. Valentine Dahl was best known for the radio series The Man in Black. Here is my chance to put down a rumour which started with my weekly broadcasts as The Man in Black, that my appetite for mystery and horror was acquired at six years of age, when Christmas parcels were mixed up and I received the works of Edgar Allan Poe instead of Mother Goose. It's absolutely untrue. I was only five. There's also a very reasonably priced copy of Sales on Sales from Faber and Faber's excellent filmmaker interview series. There's a pulpy paperback of In Search of Dracula, something eight-year-old me would have adored, and so 53-year-old me also adores it. And Stefan Elg's Beyond Belief. She actually saw a werewolf. I'm also intrigued by Christopher Morley's The Haunted Bookshop and a first hardback edition of Raymond Carver's Where I'm Calling From, which includes a press release and a promo photo of Carver. All the books are totted up, and then I see a poetry collection called How to Cure a Ghost by Farina Roshin. Fearlessly illuminates her experiences as young queer Muslim femme. I decide that must be the final book. I also regret leaving a biography of Oliver Sacks. By the way, I didn't really tell you much about Sales on Sales, so I should have explained. That's obviously about John Sales, who I consider to be uh, a brilliant and, and perhaps not revered enough filmmaker. Not only is he a great filmmaker, he also he would finance his films by being the most brilliant script doctor, coming up with fantastic dialogue for kind of big mainstream Hollywood movies and then going off and making small movies. Probably his most successful movie, I would imagine, is Lone Star. But there are others as well. Passion Fish uh, has the great scene, which I'm sure I've quoted to you before, that one that involves, I never asked for the anal probe. I decide to steer myself in another direction on my way back to the hotel. The streets of Chicago cross-weave over and under each other, so it's quite easy to get lost and think, hang on a minute, how did I not find that street? And then realise that it's actually up above you. When I do finally get to the level I need to, I see the NBC logo ahead of me. And I'm reminded of Bill Hicks's beautifully performed and brutal revenge routine concerning the televised death of Jay Leno. Guy, you know, makes three million a year. He decides to hawk Doritos to make more money. You don't got enough money, you fucking whore. You got to sell snacks to fucking bovine America now. Hi, everyone. I'm Jay Leno. Anyone remember when I was, when I was funny? 
Uh, eat Doritos. They're good. <laughs> oh, by the way, a Columbus footnote, which I should have mentioned before. I don't know how I forgot this. But I actually took the risk of answering a question about increasing curvature of space-time. Obviously, I asked Brian's permission if I could give it a go. And I got it right. I answered the science question correctly. I almost walked off the tool there and then. It definitely doesn't feel as if COVID is over in the USA. There's still so many boarded up shops and things just aren't quite buzzing as I've seen in some other places. For instance, we ate in Brian's favourite restaurant on Monday night. It's usually full, but tonight it was nearly empty. It used to be staffed by welcoming late middle-aged Chicagoan men who also carried with them a vague sense of threat when they told you how the monkfish would be filleted. We were moved from our first table due to Steph's face. The party behind us were led by a man whose delivery suggested a certain fondness for himself. During a particularly loud outburst, Steph's face winced with such magnitude that her facial muscles could be heard across the restaurant. Within seconds, we were asked if we might like to move. And so we did. Walking back to the hotel, Brian is in a questioning mood about the fashion outlets and stops to quizzically peer into boutique windows while asking, but who on earth would wear that? Back at the hotel, I lay on the bed and sped through channels. For a while, I rested on a station showing the story of a man who was shot in the face by a 15-year-old and how the two of them found some level of emotional recompense. A few channels up, I found Amy, the documentary of the tragedy of Amy Winehouse. There's a beautiful scene of her duetting with Tony Bennett. She is terrified and viciously self-critical. He is that class act. When she edgily says that she doesn't want to waste his time, he replies, have you got somewhere to go? I haven't. We'll keep doing it till we got one. It's right in there, OK? You're not in any hurry, are you? No, I'm not either. Not. So we have time. I've just got to get it right. I've got to get it right. I'm not getting it right. No, you are. You are. It's getting better each time and you sound wonderful. It reminds me of all those figures that become tragic and are spoken of with great respect when throughout their life they were repeatedly eviscerated by the press and by us. It's a warning reminding us to elevate compassion for those who are only trying to entertain us and are rarely prepared for the trial of being a media plaything. I wake up at 3.15am, too early. I wake up and am immediately thankful that I managed to fall asleep again, but it turns out it's only 3.45am. I am less cock-a-hoop. I risk just one more melatonin, and then I'm woken up by my laundry returning at 9.45am. Oh, such pristine socks. I join Steph and Brian for breakfast. Brian explains John Wheeler's paradoxical bag of gold in between his eggs and hollandaise sauce as he walks me through a black hole world which appears to have finite parameters and yet contain infinite universes. I talk about wrestling movies. I feel ragged and I come close to generating an alibi to get myself out of boxing in the park. But under the blossomy trees we punch and stretch elastic with our limbs and I survive the whole hour. It's one of the best things that I've learned from touring. 
on top of slowly building up knowledge about the information that's required to make a universe, I'm also less fearful of exercise. I was terrified of sport at school. I was so aware of my potential to fail that a flow state was quite impossible. Aware of every limb and sinew, disaster would await whether attempting to vault a horse or strike a ball. The bullying sports teacher has done a great disservice to many of us who turn away from fitness fearing derision or shame. I'm glad that at my son's school, those less sporty are encouraged more than they are mocked. While we're still stretching, a school comes to play ball in the park. After ball, they are sent to lap the park, and I spot the two podgier boys who make no attempt to run, but are engrossed in conversation. I imagine something about Doctor Strange, perhaps. And I'm reminded of my childhood. Then, though, I would probably be talking about Bigfoot in the Six Million Dollar Man, or Mad Magazine. There's a soundtrack of bells ringing as the ice cream men cycle around with their lollies, announcing a happy plague of ice pops. Sodden and salty, we return to our hotel, stopping at a Starbucks where, as usual, we panic when asked what size we want and whether syrups are required. Steph has taken to ordering whatever has just been ordered, as some baristas and coffee counter staff are already thrown by our peculiar accents. I am fascinated by the cabinet of food facsimiles on display in Starbucks. They manage to do quite the opposite of entice. There's almost a fascination in ordering something, just to see if it is as much of a ghost of a bagel as it appears to be behind the glass. Social media makes the British newspapers inescapable. I view the way that even the slightest semblance of honour can be transformed into duplicity by the hack servants of their tax-evading paymasters when reading about Keir Starmer. After a small amount of creativity and looking at the work in progress of Natalie K. Thatcher, a brilliant artist who is creating the bookshop maps for Bibliomaniac, and she also did the Feynman cartoon for the Monkey Cage book, How to Build a Universe, Part 1. I've got just enough time before the sound check to go to the Museum of Contemporary Art while Brian has one of his naps. Today, I like the ideas that the artists are aiming to explore more than the art they've created, which might be due to a mixture of haste and tiredness. At one point, I find myself in the Parafictions exhibition asking, but is it art? Now, but I mean this though in the most pragmatic sense. It's because on a bench there is a stuffed linen bag and it has a photo leaning against it and I think, is that meant to mean something? And then I realised that what it actually meant was that someone had carefully balanced their phone against a hessian bag on a bench to get a selfie of themselves appearing to be in a large Jeff Wall photograph of a reenacted nightclub. I was though very impressed by the Bani Abidi exhibition. The Man Who Talked Until He Disappeared, which was witty, dark and illuminating. In one room, there were letters found and then retyped from Indian soldiers fighting with the British in the First World War. Do not think this is a war. This is not a war. This is the ending of the world as told to our forefathers in the Mahabharat. When films are made which give some sense of the ethnic diversity in the trenches, there will always be caterwauling from the usual suspects who consider it woke or politically correct to attempt to portray a truth rather than recline in a nationalistic delusion. 
Abidia's other work included a short film about a man trying to get the record for opening the most walnuts with his head and a series of pastels of journalists whose writing has seen them erased. In each frame, we see just a little less of them. I had plans to walk the four miles to the Athenaeum as my cosmic shambles pal Trent told me of a brilliantly dishevelled shop called Bookman's Corner. I told him that he must not encourage me and he deviously replied that he wouldn't tell me about the first edition of Truman Capote's Music for Chameleons that he picked up there for $7. I start planning my route. But I am saved when I discover that the shop is not open until 1pm on Thursday. Fortunately, we are leaving at 11am on Thursday. But I can't help but wonder, what treasures might I have found? I will dream my way through those shelves. On the sidewalk, a young woman is busking and sings an Amy Winehouse song. She doesn't put a note wrong. The Athenaeum, our venue for tonight, is a historical theatre. And the toilets really make that clear. The urinal is remarkable. It is, well, it very much does look like it was placed there by Duchamp. Tonight's audience questions include, if there are infinite bubble universes in the multiverse, what is in between? Does time exist in between the bubbles? How would one travel between them? Is it a bit like travelling beyond the galactic barrier in Star Trek? Another question from my seven-year-old son. How many universes have there been? And then one more Star Trek question. What is the science, if any, behind the Kirk Picard slingshot around the sun to travel into the past in Star Trek? Plus there's plenty of questions on wormholes and singularities. Brian has a lovely time, and I regret the thickness of the scientifically specific cardigans I'm wearing during the show. It has been a hot day. A few more like this, and the knitwear is going to begin to get a bit gamey. We end the day talking about mortality while eating mac and cheese. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of Taking the Universe Around the World. And as usual, thank you very much to our producer, Trent Burton, and everyone who makes this show possible by supporting us via Patreon. So you can just go, if you don't support us via Patreon, go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles see you next time this podcast is part of the cosmic shambles network